0: first reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters are one, and each will receive their wages according to their labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how they build upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ.
1: A reading from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world
2: would you pray with me Father, fill us and satisfy us with your word for the doing of your will, so that others may come to know Jesus, your son, to come to drink of him and to be nourished by him. We ask this in his name. Amen. The life of the unnamed woman from Samaria had been transformed. Even with so brief an encounter with Jesus by Jacob's well, he had... uh, That encounter was world-shattering. Jesus had broken through every barrier, every facade between them. He approached her with this unfamiliar kindness. She had not met anyone like him, and neither had she been so treated with so much generosity for so long. For her, it was that radical comfort of being completely found out, her past completely uncovered by this Jewish rabbi, and yet at the same time, receiving from him the dignity of a conversation, his presence, his time, his all-embracing love and acceptance, and, which then compelled her to return back to the community that had pushed her aside and ostracized her. The Samaritan woman had just become the first non-Jewish female evangelist, spreading news to her people about the man who knew everything about her and yet had entrusted to her that he was the Messiah. See, she was also the first person to whom Jesus disclosed his identity point blank. Jesus did not get her to figure it out herself. There were no riddles. There were no parables. Jesus just told her directly, and she believed him. Now, last uh, Sunday, we learned from Tim that uh, what had happened to this woman, she had for the first time taken a sip of the living water, not just any kind of water, but Water from a different realm. It's water from heaven, closely related to the earth. We are surrounded by heaven, as it were. And then Jesus had offered from his depths to her. She had inwardly and spiritually drunk the water Jesus gave her in a spring. Somehow, this is some kind of supernatural magic. It's not magic, but something bubbled up from inside her. She could not contain herself, she could not keep her joy and knowledge for herself. Now in our gospel reading that Caleb had read for us, we read in verse 28, John the evangelist had left this rather minor detail that the woman had left her water jar by the well as she hurried back into town. Now we don't know why she left the jar. Now that was a very essential instrument to just leave behind. Or it could be that she had just left that for Jesus to draw water, like there was no indication that Jesus actually took a drink of water. But John John could have intended in this slight detail to symbolize the woman's abandoning the former ways she had searched for water, her deserting all other sources that posed to quench her thirst, forsaking her past, all the things that have haunted her, running from the wells she had once dug up. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? Her rather hysterical dash back to town, that was the first budding fruit from her newborn faith. It's the first bubbling up of that well that's within her. Notice that she did not insist that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but rather she posed it as a question, inviting anyone to go see for yourself, to encounter the man who could know everything about you and yet welcomes you, embraces you, treats you as a friend. Could this be the Christ? I believe the woman's approach is a suitable one for us to imitate if we would be keen to invite others to learn and go see Jesus Christ themselves. Now, back to our story. The disciples had just gotten back from town with takeout, knowing nothing about the miracle of faith that had just happened. Now, they they saw Jesus with the woman. Now, that was for them a scandalizing sight, But they didn't think it was their business to ask what was going on. They perhaps knew enough of Jesus that he probably had a good reason for breaking taboo. So they simply brought out lunch and they urged Jesus, come, eat. Then his response in verse 32, I have food to eat you don't know about. Naturally the disciples thought that perhaps Jesus had lunch already. Now that that episode with the woman was still fresh in Jesus' mind, and being the rabbi that he was, he took that opportunity to teach his disciples about yet another greater, more transcendent reality behind eating as he did to the woman about drinking. Now this is about eating. He was just talking about what drinking was beforehand. Now this is about something you're eating, solid food. See, the lesson Jesus was about to teach the disciples was a continuation to the lesson that he taught The woman. So first, Jesus implied of his own basic need, as it is ours as humans, to consume, to consume. Now, since Jesus arrived at Jacob's well, there was no indication again that he had actually drunk anything or had any food to eat, especially at this time of day. It was noontime, it was very hot. It's very likely at this point that Jesus was in fact very thirsty. He's very hungry at least in a bodily sense. And yet, according to Jesus, he had already eaten. He's feeling filled up. He's feeling satisfied. He's sustained in his being, not because he had lunch, but by having just done God's will of making, as it were, followers of the Messiah, followers of him. In verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now by that saying, Jesus is saying that I'm the doing of God's will is food to keep you going. The doing of God's will is food to keep you going. Now this was one of Jesus' uh, quick draw metaphors in the gospel. It's, I mean, it's not so much a metaphor, but it is a metonymy. It's a metonymy. It's a figure of a speech that simply replaces an object with a closely related idea. So here, Jesus is closely related. He's linking food with God's will, eating with the doing of God's will. Now, what did Jesus mean? Now, just for for a moment, putting away, putting aside the religious language, it's really the human longing and pursuit of purpose, of purpose in our lives that keeps anyone going. As food sustains the body, Purpose sustains one's existence. So what if you're alive? you got to have something to live for. So what? That your heart is beating, that you're breathing in your lungs, you got to have something to live for. You've heard it said that one either eats to live or you live to eat. The privileged minority of the world that we're part of, we largely live to eat. And by eat, I mean consume, as in as a consumer. Our global economy is fueled by consumption and for consumption, and we're often caught between the gears and the grind, the consumer-industrial complex, aren't we? But despite the choices and luxuries that it has produced, consumer society is generally highly medicated, highly depressed, highly obsessed with self-image, often recovering from yesterday's high just to chase and purchase tomorrow's buzz, and so the consumer becomes consumed. English writer G.K. Chesterton wrote that meaninglessness doesn't come from being weary of pain, but by being weary of pleasure. Our consumer consumption society has formed and informed our expectations. Whether you know it or not, our conventions were the very process, purpose, of consumption, we, despite our acknowledging or not, we live to eat in our society. And then the majority of the world eats to live. The very context in which Jesus taught this lesson, when access to food and water is not a matter of choice, but a matter of life or death, when your survival and your family's survival is tethered to how hard you work, even while you're never sure or are in control whether or not your crops or your cattle or your capital will be there for next year. It's within this context that Jesus is saying, you may be wondering and are fearful of where you will get your next bite to eat or where you will get your next sip of water, but your human existence is far more to do, has far more to do with the doing of God's will in this life for that is your existential purpose. That is our existential purpose. One does not simply thrive from food alone, but each and every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Whether we eat to live, whether we live to eat, or whether we feel like we're being eaten alive, human life is neither consumption nor just survival. It's neither consumption nor just survival. It's not life more than what you will eat. Or what you will drink, or your body more than what you will wear, your clothing. Does not the world crave and chase and are consumed for these things? But you, on the other hand, should crave and chase and look intently and be consumed for the kingdom of God and his justice on earth, and then everything else will be thrown in along with it as bonus. Much later on in the gospel, Jesus will so feed and consume the will of his Father, he would finally be consumed in the end, when he laid aside his life for the rescue and ransom of many, that he would be consumed by death. So that death finally, the great consumer of all things, right, insatiable, the one thing that keeps eating and is never satisfied, death itself would be consumed and swallowed up by life eternal. So now we who would consume the body of Jesus into broken bread by faith, we're consuming, we're eating Jesus' essential humanity, his life, his purpose for which the Father sent him to feed us for the mission to which we're called. And that's our segue into, next, into the next lesson that Jesus will teach about the mission of God's harvest. In verse 35, Jesus continues, Don't you say there, <coughs> there are yet... Four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Now the lesson about food led naturally to the lesson about the fields. Now the lesson about the fields is about bringing people into the kingdom of God as a farmer would bring the harvest into their barn. Now, Jesus was apparently quoting a well-known agrarian proverb here that expressed the joyful anticipation of harvest time. And that's usually four months After the the fields have been prepared and sown. But Jesus is saying, you don't actually have to wait around. You don't have to wait all between sowing and reaping. What's been sown, miraculously had already ripened, is ready to be gathered. Jesus was elbowing his disciples. Look up, see the fields? They're already so white. Referring to that off-white color of the heads of wheat that whenever they ripen. But, of course, Jesus was referring to the ripeness of the Samaritan people of Sichar, who will soon regard him as Messiah because of the testimony of the woman. She was that first fruit, that first head of wheat, as it were, from the Samaritan harvest. Jesus continues in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, harvest time for ancient Jews, that's a huge deal. It's a very huge deal because not just because everyone's involved, they get to work and they have a party, they have fun together. It's a village occasion. It's actually a religious festive occasion. It's a time of Shavuot, a feast of weeks. That celebrates both God's giving of the law and the giving of food into the ground. Now, there's a lot of meal prep at this time, a lot of music, a lot of parades, especially as the farmers are bringing the first fruits of their crops into Jerusalem as they're being waved on with with music. That's why Jesus is saying here, there's sowing and reaping, rejoicing together. But Jesus is saying there's a greater reason for why you will rejoice, because the abundance of this spiritual kind of harvest somehow has become incredibly urgent. It's a state of emergency, as it were, in a good way. The seeds have already germinated so much fruit. That's, that's he's saying there's so many people ready to believe at this time. There's no four months of waiting. As soon as the seeds are in the ground, get ready with your hand, with one sickle. You have to reap. Jesus is bringing to mind this Old Testament passage from the prophet Amos where Amos foretold of a time when the reaper will be overtaken by the plower, and the sower by the one who's treading grapes. Jesus is saying, In me has the fertile age of the new creation blossomed. You're seeing the color of the petals. Something is ripening. There's an abundance of people, starting in Israel and beyond. They'll come to know the name of Yahweh, They will worship and regard him as God through the Jewish Messiah. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. Now Jesus is affirming these distinct roles of those who are called to labor. There are those who sow, there are those who reap according to their task. Now, (coughs) excuse me, there are Christians who are called to be evangelists. There are Christians called to be preachers. There are Christians called to be on mission work. And there are other Christians who are called elsewhere. But but every Christian, no matter your place and stage in life, we are workers in God's field. One sows, one reaps, but everyone works. One sows, one waters, one plants, one reaps, but everyone works. In our first reading, the Apostle Paul affirmed this. Spiritual reality. The one who plants... The one who waters are one. Each will receive their wages according to to their labor. We're God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. Now, that's a mixing of metaphors. He's saying we are our Christian faith. We're a cultivating enterprise, sowing, growing, harvesting among your relationships, in your community, in your own home and neighborhoods. But then he says that we're also the field, we are the work itself. We're not to reckon ourselves as somehow expert gardeners or professionals in this area. We're to reap even as we ourselves are the fruit. We're ripening, we're growing, we're needing to be pruned. All our workers in God's field, even as we're God's field and His fruits being worked on by the Holy Spirit. And so finally, Jesus finishes His lesson about the fields in verse 38. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. So first this farming, gardening, cultivating work of the Christian. It's not some hobby (laughs) that you can get into or not. It's not a matter of having a green thumb or not. Jesus said, I sent you. I sent you. It's a mission directive. A deputization by the Messiah to everyone who claims to follow him. The life we have is on loan as a trust to be invested, not to be hoarded or hidden away in the privacy of our own spiritual lives. Imagine this, a fruit tree bearing pretty flowers, budding so many things and big juicy fruits emerging just so that it could collect them all, so that it could keep it, them all for itself. That doesn't make sense at all, right? It bears fruit because it's meant to make more of itself, to cast its seed abroad. The seed remains by itself, all alone, unless it dies. If it dies, it makes more seeds for the sower, so that those who love their life will lose it. Those who forsake their life in this world for the kingdom will gain it in eternal life. Now Jesus said, finally, that when we're to reap, we have only done so because others have already done the work. We've come to this point in time during the final age of the messianic harvest when others have already worked on the field, removing debris, removing the rocks, tilling the soil, getting rid of the weeds, and sowing the seeds into the ground. Those who didn't even get to reap were enjoyed the fruits that we see today all around us. I mean, even Jesus himself got to reap what his cousin John had earlier done in Samaria when he was in the region preaching and baptizing. It's because of John's work that prepared the fields of Samaria, as it were, and then Jesus and his disciples came to reap the Samaritan harvest. And such as it is in the church today, we stand today upon the foundation that was built up throughout the centuries by the blood Sweat and tears of women and men who have prayed, who have suffered, who have toiled and been killed, have fought and championed for a better world, a more clarified and lived-out faith, a world they saw as being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. And even in our relationships right now, in your workplaces, the people we're engaging in gospel conversations, at least when we're trying to, we don't know whether or not a foundation has already been built in their lives by other Christians in their families or in their networks. We can only be working or reaping from what others have already worked hard for. And perhaps we've been sent at this time, really, to bring that to fruition. You may come to see someone come to Jesus Christ, you'll see their fresh joy. That infant joy, as, you've, as, we've, as we've seen in the Samaritan woman, that would be a privilege to see. And even as the church finds herself in the margins of our society, the work looks very different, yes, but it's the same. There's probably less reaping and harvesting among the rubbles of Western Christendom. It may be for a long time of us trying to get rid of the debris and the mess that the church herself has made, ...and from all the deconstruction and the disentangling our society is doing from our past. But the work is the same. As the world itself mostly is becoming more religious... ...and as Western European societies are becoming less... ...the work is the same. The work is plentiful. Some of us called to sow. Others to reap. Some to remove debris to till and plow to sweat it out. Others to weed under the sun. Others to water. But only God gives the growth. We can't coax anyone to believe. That's not a good thing to do. We don't shove anything into anyone's throats. Only God gives the growth. We invite them. Could this be the Christ? Come and see for yourself. We are all workers in God's field. We rejoice together in the harvest. Let's live for the eating and doing of God's will in our lives, for nourishment, for the mission at hand. And whether we're to sow or reap or to plant or water, look up, look up, (laughs) lift up your eyes and see the harvest, white for reaping. The laborers are few, the work is plentiful. Let's pray, let's ask the Lord of the harvest to send the work, to send us to work, to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, who is the King of the new creation. May we smell and see the vivid colors that are arising in our world in your own life. May we see to it that we cultivate and reap and sow. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. Amen.